Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. With host Ranger Doug. Here's Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ranger Doug, and welcome to our 29th program and the 14th in our series on Russia moves into Ukraine. Tonight, I'm joined by Dr. Brian Downing and Dr. David Johnson, two who have been with us before. General Grange is away, but we expect him to return within the next weeks. And as we head into the program, it's important, again, to remember that we don't really discuss politics, uh, partisan politics. We stick to the facts as we know them. We base everything we do on the analysis of open source information, same as you can read, and we try to keep this as factual as possible. You also may hear opinions by participants that may differ on certain aspects. But again, our intent here is to provide you the best range of information that we can. So let me move to introduce our guests. Dr. Brian Downing, sir, please provide a short introduction. Uh, Brian Downing here, independent uh, political military analyst. Three years in the Army back in the early 70s, schooling, lots of it, Georgetown, University of Chicago, Harvard, and as I said, independent security analyst now. Back to you. And Dr. Dave Johnson, please provide a short introduction. Yeah, hi, Ranger Doug. Dave Johnson. I'm a retired Army colonel. I served for 25 years in the quartermaster and field artillery assignments. Uh, in Germany, Korea, Hawaii, all over the States. I retired in 1997 as a colonel. I was lucky the Army had sent me to get a Ph.D. in military history at Duke, uh, and I became interested in innovation. I wrote a book called Fast Tanks and Heavy Bombers. Uh, I was in industry for about a year, then I joined RAND in 1998, and I studied innovation, joint operations, civil military relations, and strategy. I'm also a adjunct scholar at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, gentlemen. And as you know, I'm Ranger Doug. I don't need an introduction because I only function as the dealer in this card game. Now, on to the first question, and that will be you, Brian. Where do you think Ukraine and Russia are today in the war? Over to you. Uh, right now, Ukraine has pretty much stopped counteroffensives. They had one going up near in the north-central area of Kharkiv. They have achieved their objectives, at least their midterm ones, and that is that they've pushed the Russians away from the city and they are in a position to threaten Russian positions uh, in the northwest part of the Donbass. The, there's another offensive that has halted down in the south, maybe 75 kilometers east of Kherson, uh, east of Odessa, around Kherson. The Ukrainians were making very good progress about a week or two ago. They have halted, and they have come up against uh, Russian defensive positions on the outskirts of Kherson, maybe seven, eight miles. The Russians are dug in on the west bank of the Dnipro River, and they don't want to get thrown across that river, though it might happen. The Russians, they took Mariupol last week. We don't know how many casualties they took, but it, the, the numbers must have been staggering. The Marine and Azov units on the Ukrainian side fought street by street, pile of rubble by pile of rubble for nine, ten weeks. And I don't know if Russian has a term for Pyrrhic victory, but uh, they will probably have to get one pretty soon. In the Donbass, they did have an attempt of a massive encirclement movement, uh, Stalingrad style. The northern end of it, I think, has been checked. The southern end of it never really got anywhere. 
What we're seeing now is a war of attrition, massive artillery, missiles, and relentless ground attacks that are uh, trying to wear down the Ukrainian forces. There may be a small encirclement effort around Severodonetsk, where there are 10 to 15,000 Ukrainian troops. They are in a pretty dicey situation, but uh, the Russians have not made any progress in the last 36 hours. And uh, instead of pulling back, Ukraine is reinforcing Back to you, Ranger Doc. Great. Thank you. And then, David, over to you, please, sir. Well, it's really hard to improve on what Brian gave us a really very good laydown. The only thing I would add is I don't think we really know what Russian casualties were in Mariupol. More importantly, we don't know what Ukrainian casualties have been you know, with any degree of resolution since the war started. My concern, and we talked about this before, Ranger Doug, is that in a war of attrition, when you outnumber your adversary essentially five to one, as Clausewitz said, you know, it's in a war of exhaustion, don't become exhausted first. And my concern is the Russians are just grinding it where they can, and they're going to keep piling on. And I worry that the Ukrainians are just going to run out of people and munitions and equipment. So the demand for us to help them is, I think, going to steadily increase because, you know, they are at least, you know, even if you divide the Russian estimates of Ukrainian casualties in half, they're still significant, and they're you know, going to be difficult to replace. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you very much, David. So here's my take on where Russia and Ukraine are today. Uh, they're still in that, as uh, the other Dave Johnson has called it, the uh, attrition phase. And the situation for both is going to depend on how much they can marshal as far as troops, morale, equipment, tactics, operations, and how rapidly those things can become effective in the battle. We may see local reverses. We may see local wins by either side, but the attempt to try to determine anything at this point may be soon in the sense of they probably have a lot more they could fight. But there are other things that are beginning to impact the fight, such as an expectation that lack of fertilizer and of grain and other things that come out of the joint areas of Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine, creating certain famine-like qualities in the rest of the world, particularly Africa, Central and South America, and other places that don't have the ability to support themselves. This will put a great deal of strain on world finances at a time where prices are skyrocketing all over the world. By the same token, equipment being rushed to help the Ukrainians still has to be integrated, it has to be trained, it has to have a logistic base. It's going to be difficult to field everything they're being given, and there's always that idea that some of it may end up on the black market or saved for later. The Russians, on the other hand, seem to have bare cupboards right now and, in fact, haven't got munitions and other things they need to fight with and are actually beginning to receive supplies from the Chinese and elsewhere. So we'll have to see where that goes. Again, the attrition phase, who wears out first, and that largely will be determined by who can rearm, reload, refit, refuel, and stay in the fight. Remember, Ukraine has a population of about 40 million, Russia about 140 million, a huge land mass, and the ability to draw on client states and allies as well. Ukraine is drawing on its partners. It has no real formal allies, but partners can't get into the fight the same way that Russian allies may be able to. Thank you. Let's go on then to question number two. So now the war is underway. What are the war aims of Russia, Mr. Putin, Ukraine, and Mr. Zelensky? David, that'll be yours first, please. So, Ranger Doug, that's the perennial question we keep asking ourselves. I think you know, nobody really knows what's going to satisfy Putin. It's pretty clear he's doubling down the east, and that is a minimalist goal for him, is to consolidate that region under Russian control and probably put a puppet government in place. 
Beyond that, I don't think we really know. For Zelensky, he's in a really difficult position. Henry Kissinger made a statement that the Ukrainians ought to be prepared to give up territory to the Russians to end the war because it, you know, they should be uh, to get a diplomatic solution. I don't think Zelensky is in a position after really public expression of outrage, which is fully justified about Russian war crimes, uh, going back to the Ukrainian people and saying, we're going to cut a deal, even though you've suffered and the vast majority of our population has been displaced and thousands have been killed, but we're just going to make up and let them have essentially what they want. I'm not sure that's going to sell, but he's in a difficult position again, like I said, of, you know, how much more can the Ukrainians endure? And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, they're very close on anything to do with their losses, which good on them. I mean, it's one of the few militaries in recent history I know of that actually practices good OPSEC and tries to control the narrative. So, you know, they're doing a great job at that. But as a consequence, I don't think we really know what the status of their forces is. Zelensky gave some indication a couple of days ago when he said they'd had four to 5,000 casualties, I think. But it was an offhanded remark, not a you know really specific about what that meant. So I, I don't know, but I think Zelensky is in a very difficult position of this has turned into a war against a brutal aggressor and making peace with that aggressor is really going to be difficult to sell internally. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. Brian, then over to you, sir. Well, Zelensky has never made it clear what he means by not giving up any territory. Is, does he mean none as of the borders of last February, or does he mean as of the borders of eight years ago when the Russians took Crimea and portions of the East? I don't know. The decision is uh, actually Zelensky's, and I, I think it's ultimately up to the Ukrainian people. I think Russia still thinks it can win this war. I think it can wear down the Ukrainian army in the East. They're using the wood chipper analogy, which is actually an analogy that the Pentagon used, the, uh, how Russia was frittering away its army by throwing it piecemeal into a wood chipper. But uh, the Russians are using that term, that they think they can just wear down the Ukrainian army, expand at the very least into all of the eastern territories, Luhansk and Donetsk, and then push west along the Black Sea, toward Odessa, past Odessa, and on to Transnistria. I really don't think they can do either of those two things, but they believe they do. Ukraine, I think, believes that it can wear down the Russian army first. They have superior discipline. They have uh, the Western artillery systems. They have the switchblades, all sorts of other loitering munitions that are just steadily wearing down the Russian troops. Russian troops had a lot of uh, discipline troubles, a lot of morale problems. We saw they had this disastrous river crossing campaigns about two weeks ago. What are the, the nature of these disciplinary problems? Do they hate Putin? Do they oppose the war? Not necessarily. They may just feel that their local officers are completely incompetent, which they clearly are. If they can get competent officers in there, that's a big if. They can be more successful. But uh, the idea that the Russian army is opposed to the war, opposed to Putin, and when I say the army, I mean the rank and file, I'm not sure that's the case. They may just be opposing their local officers. That was the case with the French army, with the mutinies in the First World War. They didn't oppose the war. They didn't oppose their governments. They just thought their generals and colonels weren't very good. Beyond that, I think uh, Ukraine would like to break the land bridge uh, if they assume offensive operations. 
they could drive south from Zaporizhia towards uh, Melitopol, and that would effectively cut off Crimea from the rest. And that would be an excellent position for Ukraine. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Brian. So my take on now that the war is underway and what are the war aims of Russia, Mr. Putin, Ukraine, Mr. Zelensky, of course, as I said in the answer to the first question, it's really the war of attrition and who can field the most and who can employ the most and who can continue to fight is probably going to hold what they've got, which may end up looking very similar to what it was originally. If you remember at the beginning of this fight, Russians had occupied Donetsk, Luhansk, Crimea and certain other border properties, but they hadn't really secured the whole of a land bridge that let them have the territory to themselves on the west side of the Sea of Azov. That meant that in order to get to Crimea, they had to drive all the way around the Sea of Azov, coming in from the southeast. Uh, what they wanted to have was at least a strip of land running from Luhansk and Donetsk all the way to Crimea so that they could drive there unopposed. And, and that strip of land would need to have a road, possibly a railroad, and the strip would need to be as wide as artillery could shoot by about two times. So in other words, probably close to 50 kilometers times two. About a 60-mile wide strip then was what they probably were angling for. Now, they seem to be able to secure something like that, but the Ukrainians appear to want to contest everything they're going to take. When they had Luhansk and Donetsk, they were occupied by Russian sympathizers, not by the Russian army. When the Russian army goes into Luhansk, Donetsk, and other places, it's opposed. And obviously, the Ukrainians have some ideas of counterattacking. We're seeing stories that show that Ukrainian forces are surrendering. This will have an end point at some point. And we will find ourselves with some kind of a negotiated lull in the war and perhaps a starting of fighting again. But it's likely to go through a series of fits and starts. It's not certain what exactly Mr. Putin's war aims may be at this time, because it's always been to take as much of Ukraine as he could, probably to leave the balance of Ukraine a, a friendly, sympathetic state with a puppet government. I'm not certain he can gain that no matter how hard he tries. It may be simply to possess that strip the Donetsk-Luhansk area, which we call the Donbass, all the way to Crimea, and a strip of land to, to preserve it. We'll take a quick break now for a commercial. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 29th program, our 14th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention all U.S. veterans. 
You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. Now we'll move on to our third question. That is, what are the noticeable activities of or effects in the world, including the U.S., NATO, EU, possibly the PRC? And that one I will give to Brian first. Over to you, Brian. The United States is increasing its weapons supply to Ukraine more and more. Uh, the artillery, the switchblades, probably things we don't know about. But every weapon system that goes to the Ukraine increases American, European, and world security. It's uh, money well spent. NATO, we're seeing Sweden and Finland moving closer to NATO membership. It's a long procedure. Turkey threw a monkey wrench into the process, and it would appear that they want Sweden and Finland to drop their support of the Kurds in the Middle East. Uh, It would not be the first time that the Kurds have gotten the short end of the stick. The world, I think there's a coming food crisis. There's not much grain coming out of the Black Sea, and that was a very important source. I think it's four times as expensive to ship it by train west. It's going to put a lot of pressure on countries. It's a nuisance to us, but it's a grave burden and utter ruin for many people around the world. China, oddly enough, is a major food importer these days, and I think we will see them, for any number of reasons, trying to find some sort of way out of this. China is buying up Russian oil at about $30 a barrel discount. Buy it on sale. And I believe they're putting it into a strategic reserve system. I think I'll just go back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Brian. David, over to you, sir. Yeah, Ranger Doug. I mean, it's hard to, you know, just trying to elaborate a little bit on uh, the last comments. There was an interesting article from one of the ministers of defense in one of the European countries the other day that essentially said it would be foolish to count the Russians out. They have a habit of, you know, learning from really bad experiences. And the kind of overmatch and, you know, size differential, you know, it will eventually come into play in this war of attrition. So he's cautioning, you know, don't be overly optimistic. I think the PRC has been what the Chinese are really good at, which is, you know, not being committal and saying things that, you know, quite frankly, you know, are in its interest. But, it, you know, it's interesting how they talk about nobody violating another country's sovereignty as long as it's someone that they don't want to have violate someone's sovereignty. I think they are reliant on, you know, they're taking advantage of Russian availability of oil, which really puts a hole in the sanctions if that much is flowing there. 
for the rest of the world, you know, I agree. There's going to be what Brian said, the food shortage is going to be amplified by if you go back to the Arab Spring, what really was the ignition of that was the absence of cooking oil, which also comes out of Ukraine. And, you know, I think it's going to be a cold winter in Europe uh, without Russian oil and gas. The Europeans are kind of hedging a little bit, saying that they plan on getting completely off of it in a year. You know, it's still taking a bite. We're getting towards the midterms where inflation is probably, you know, the single issue, perhaps with some concerns over the leaked memo on, from the Supreme Court on abortion. But, you know, people are feeling the pinch in the United States and blaming it all on the war may be somewhat problematic because that means if you end the war, this the inflation will win. I think everybody knows that even knows an economist knows that that's not the entire cause of inflation. But people are going to get, I think, frustrated as this thing continues on, particularly if it drags in past the year mark, which it very potentially could. Back over to you, Ranger. Doug? Thank you, Dave. As far as effects on the world, uh, including the U.S., China, the various international organizations such as the UN and the EU, other countries, the famine will be the biggest thing. Plus the manipulation of currency, the various aspects of the financial system, the fact that many countries are throwing armaments into this fight that they can't replenish quickly. This is going to lead to some crunches in arming, but it will also lead to a buildup of arms as they replenish supplies. It's beginning to look increasingly like the Chinese are preparing for at least mobilization, maybe not war, but they're giving all the signs that they are preparing for something because they've alerted their elites to remove or suppress the investments they've had, recover their assets because they don't want the elites to become pressured by sanctions. There will be people who don't do this. They'll likely be found to be uh, enemy of the state and locked in gulags. So there's a lot that's going to happen as things move forward. The Chinese economy is slowing down. They have to have an increasing number of jobs all the time, putting more people in the workforce and then build uh, the income stream and continuing to increase it because it's the only way they stay afloat. If they ever cease growing, uh, they actually begin to recede. They also are having problems internally as far as infrastructure and other things. Many of their products sent out to the world, like those tires I mentioned earlier, are not working. If they're going to do anything in regard to Taiwan, they'll probably start it slow with a blockade and then make their move. A blockade would need to be in place or at least some kind of sea control activity such that uh, it would give the appearance that to try to penetrate would create a fight. And that would be the easiest way to stand anyone off. On the other hand, if they could, they might like to try to isolate it otherwise, but they will not be able to do what they did in Hong Kong because Hong Kong was given back to them. They were able to occupy it with police forces. Not likely to see that given the situation that Taiwan is over 100 miles off the coast of the People's Republic of China. So let's go on to the next question. What's the status of any ceasefire, truce, or peace efforts? Dave, you'll have the lead on that one. Over to you, sir. Well, that kind of goes back to your earlier question about what are the aims of both states. And if you don't know the war aims of the states, you really don't know what their negotiating positions are. And I think that's kind of where we are. They may develop in the coming weeks and months. But right now, I would just go back a little bit on what Brian said earlier about what Zelensky said. I have seen a comment where Zelensky and others are saying, we want to go back to the borders of 2014. Uh, it may be wishful thinking, maybe just for the internal consumption of Ukrainians, and it may be just a trial balloon. But that just shows you that I don't think anybody really knows at this juncture what a viable negotiating position is for either side. 
Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dave. Then, Brian, over to you, please. Uh, the only negotiations I see are some short-term ones uh, that would be prisoner of war exchange. The Russians took a lot of prisoners at Mariupol, maybe 2,000. It's hoped that they will be exchanged for Russian prisoners. However, my concern is that at least some of them will be tried as war criminals. This would underline the Russian claim that underline in Russia's estimation, it's claimed that they're fighting neo-Nazis there. And there would be the tit-for-tat because the Ukrainians correctly prosecuted one Russian for a war crime up in the Kyiv region. I just don't see an end to this war coming soon. It's going to drag on and it's going to be very ugly. Back to you, Don. Thank you, Brian. Regarding the status of any peace truce or ceasefire efforts. Leaders have begun to talk, not Mr. Putin himself, but Russians have begun to talk. Some have disaffected and are talking about the need to stop the war. That doesn't mean go to a peace settlement. It means stop the fighting. Negotiations likely are going on somewhere behind the scenes. Zelensky has said we need to begin some kind of negotiating. Dr. Kissinger has talked about the fact that Ukraine needs to be prepared to give up land. Obviously, many things are percolating at this point, but at the time we're finding ourselves now, neither country has the uh, real need to set the toys down, but they will put the tools down when one or the other becomes exhausted. And likely some kind of arrangement will be supervised by an international body. It's going to have a heck of an effect on the world in the end, though, as we all expect. We'll take a quick break now for a commercial. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 29th program, our 14th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. 
Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. So we're moving on to our final question, and that is thinking about where we've been, what do we think will happen in the coming weeks, and any further thoughts? And that'll be first with Brian. Over to you, sir. Well, I'm looking for significant guerrilla warfare in the land bridge. Remember, the Ukrainians trained very hard for guerrilla warfare over the previous eight years. We haven't seen a great deal of it because the Russians really haven't taken that much territory. Remember, just about everybody thought that the Russians would take large parts of Ukraine in the opening weeks. That hasn't happened, but they have taken parts of that land bridge. And uh, there's guerrilla activity there. There is activity in the big city of Kherson, east of Odessa, and then east of that area, there is a very large region where ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, sees uh, sustained, intense guerrilla operation. It's pretty much a no-go zone for the Russians. Uh, We're not going to get a good idea of the fighting there for quite a while. Uh, Second thing to look for is continued and perhaps worsening disciplinary troubles in the Russian army. They just don't have the training and the motivation that the Ukrainians have. There was one Russian soldier who said in basic training he fired eight bullets. Well, I think you fire about 800 in army basic training here. I don't remember, but it's a heck of a lot more than that. There's always the expectation that there's going to be unrest in Russia, and we do see acts of arson. There have been some bridges blown in Belarus and uh, some other infrastructure damage in parts of Russia north of Kharkiv. But the big unrest in the Russian population that I think a lot of us were expecting, I no longer expect to see it. I think most Russians buy the narrative that this is a righteous, understandable war that has to be uh, fought and won. The idea of World War II is just so deeply impressed on the Russian mines with good reasons. They lost 20 to 27 million people in that war. And everybody knows somebody who died. Everybody had a grandfather or an uncle who fought there and perhaps died there. So the idea that there's this outside force that's about to wreak havoc on Russia again, it's an easy sell to the Russian people. I hope to see it erode in coming months, but I don't expect to see any great opposition to Putin in coming months. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Brian. David, over to you. Yeah, so again, I agree with my colleague Brian here that I think you will see increased guerrilla warfare. Part of that is it's a very useful way to take on the Russians in these places. The other piece I think that we're starting to see that a friend of mine put me onto this, that Ukrainian formations in some cases are having significant losses. And as they erode the people that have been trained in the West, they're going to replace them with territorial forces who are not nearly as well trained or prepared to do you know, what the regular army has been doing. So you may see a drop-off in the performance of the Ukrainians. It may also really inhibit their ability to do any kind of other than minor local counterattack type of offensive operations. I think there will be some difficulty in integrating some of the kit that we're sending there. 777 howitzers are not that much different than a towed howitzer in any other military, but they're different enough. It takes a little bit of training. Where you get to something difficult is, you know, the the Germans are selling Gepard anti-aircraft armored vehicles that are 
not simple machines to operate. They have radars, and I'm sure the instructions aren't in Ukrainian. So some of this kit they're going to be getting is really good on paper. It's going to be hard to integrate in real time. Plus, it, you know, I have a feeling the Russians are going to increase their use of this kind of dumb bombing on infrastructure, on you know, transit corridors, want to go after what's coming in, but also just to show that they can. So I think the the level of violence from fires, the longer the Russian the Russians are stymied, the worse it's going to get. The Russian population is an interesting question. I mean, this is you know, this is back to Tolstoy essentially. The Russians have always suffered greatly under whoever's there, and they've always done whatever it took to defend Mother Russia. It's just remarkable. I don't think anybody in the West really understands it. I think, you know, what Brian said about the deep imprint on them of World War II is beyond our comprehension. You know, we've lost more to COVID than we have in every war ever fought by the United States. Total. You know, the Russians lost more in Leningrad than we lost to COVID. So it's just a there's a different kind of mindset about what it means to be Russian and what it means to stand up for Mother Russia that I you know I think is pretty pervasive and it's a powerful thing to push back against. I know the polling there is probably bogus because nobody's going to say they don't like the war, they don't like Putin. But my sense is that you know there's not a widespread opposition to the war because they've been fed you know misinformation or whatever through their media for a long time. And I think their inclination is to support Putin. I mean, he's been there forever and they've done nothing about it thus far. So, you know, I'm just not very optimistic that they'll do anything about it at this point. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dave. I would like to say that uh, we're seeing some very strange things happen in Russian society. It appears that uh, his uh, presidential protection service has rallied around Putin and insulates him very well from everyone else. But they're are actually uh, indications that that control, similar to the Roman Praetorian Guard of old, uh, may be experiencing some fraying around the edges. So uh, things are still kind of up in the air. Obviously, we've got some activity uh, that, that China has undertaken as it shifts its uh, future to take in uh, an approach to possible unification of Taiwan that has the world concerned. There's a lot going on right now. And as we approach our own Memorial Day, uh, we remember its purpose being different from Veterans Day. And uh, we want to salute uh, all of our veterans at this critical time that obviously in the past was known first as Decoration Day. Regarding what we'll see in the coming weeks, it's going to be more of the same for the time being, unless there's a breakthrough of Russian forces into deeper Ukraine, and unless uh, somehow some emerging technology develops that proves to be a war stopper. Really, we've seen most of that already in that the Ukrainians have been very adept at using new technologies to make what one of our panelists, Dr. Dave Johnson, says is perceptions on the part of many have arisen that the tank and large ships and such may be obsolete. But like Spy versus Spy in the old Mad Magazine, there's always the chance that someone will invent a new technology or employ a current technology differently to take aside all of those assumptions about how X is dead. You know, the tank is dead. Long live the tank. Uh, it's not being employed properly using combined arms techniques. 
with proper air coordination and so forth. The United States Army, Air Force, Marines, Navy, and Coast Guard are masters of employing not only their own assets and those of the other services, but we as a country are very adept at employing the other instrumentalities of our government in fighting. The problem we have is, of course, as a republic with an elected leader that changes every so often, we often change policy in course of the fight, and that's what we did in Afghanistan and other places. This will be a short, sharp fight, and it's going to be over in period of time, probably less than a year, with major shifts in the world. Also, with the Chinese aspect, there are second and third order effects that we can't really see, but many of us sense that something new is coming. Now then, one has to then ask themselves, with the Russians removed as a threat for the next 10 years, does the rest of Europe need to be worried that they'll come again after this abortive war, if in fact it is abortive? And what if the Chinese do come out and are embarrassed in their attempt to take Taiwan? Because, of course, fighting on the sea is just as difficult as fighting on the land. They have not practiced that, neither have we. There haven't been real amphibious operations in detail since World War II, and it took us years to get them right. But by the time we hit D-Day, we had already landed many times in the Pacific, several times in Europe, and we had developed uh, huge logistics and other capabilities that let us do that. We no longer have those same things. So even our landings in an amphibious nature at beaches and such would be difficult at this point. Our fighting on the sea is also going to be impaired by the fact that each of our enemies, Russia, China, certain others, have long-range cruise missiles that one or two can completely knock out one of our ships, perhaps even one of our biggest ships, without uh, even an airplane seeing the ship. These missiles can be launched from over the horizon by ships and also by aircraft. On the other hand, a lot of the ships today are made of aluminum and magnesium, so they're fast and light, but they're also capable of being destroyed by one or two missiles. Uh, the reason for that, of course, is that they're cheaper to build, they're easier to run, and many thought that the newer defensive systems would allow the ship to defend itself. Well, we'll see. With drone swarms and other things on the horizon, how long will ships be able to defend themselves at sea, and will the tank and tankers evolve other methods of protecting themselves? Command posts, artillery and installations, and everything else, they're going to need the same overhead protection because the drones are coming. So wait and watch over the next few weeks. We'll see what we see. Well, that's a wrap then. Thank you for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. This was our 29th program, our 14th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Remember, we're part of the Veterans Broadcast Network, and we have another program out there, Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin, a decorated aviator from the Iraq War who suffered a terrible nighttime crash in his helicopter, lost his leg, recovered himself, has become an endurance hunter, a super athlete, a brilliant interviewer, runs a wonderful program on Monday night. Please check his program out. It's an hour long and provides great insight into the status of our veterans. We don't offer any politics here. We offer only information we believe is as best we can sort out from open source. We don't do anything to try to uh, compromise sources or methods, although many of us have had backgrounds in intelligence in other places. We also want to remember our nation and its dead at Memorial Day, the, the people who died in battle, our veterans, our families and others as we approach a rather solemn holiday. And while we enjoy it, while watching baseball and having picnics and everything else, this is the holiday where we actually do remember those who passed away to give us the gift of liberty, freedom, and a chance to be all we can be. I'll close now with just a simple admonition to enjoy the holiday weekend and think about our troops deployed overseas, and we must do everything we can to see that we are not engaged in another war too soon. This is Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. 
Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, No One Left Behind, 